What a blessing to gather together this morning as we have actually finished a book. John chapter 1 through 12 is called by many the book of signs. This section of scripture that has ironed out for us the identity of Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth is the sent one of God. He is the Christ, the eternal son of God who has taken on flesh and dwelt among us. And it is by belief in Jesus, the sinless Lamb of God, by which one can have forgiveness and eternal life, abundant life. Chapter 13 is our pivot. The attention pivots toward Jerusalem as we look here at this Passover scene. Now, John doesn't go into as great of detail with the bread and the cup language, but this is the scene. This is Holy Week. And what's going to take place in the Gospel of John is all four of the Gospels take time to focus upon this final week of Jesus. John, in particular, will give at least nine chapters devoted to this week. And the believer in this way is forced to put to the test, not only who do I believe Jesus is, but what did Jesus actually accomplish? What did he do? And do I believe in him? Have I placed my trust in him? And what we see in our text this morning, right in the middle in John chapter 13, is this reality of what Jesus has done, this act of passion and loving service that he's committed. And the result for us, though the book of signs ends in chapter 12, children of God, to those who believe in the Lord, are to live a life reflecting the goodness and kindness of God, that our lives are to be signs pointing to Jesus. Our lives as we're transformed and being transformed into Christ's likeness. Our lives as we go through the world as light and salt, we go reflecting and testifying of Jesus. That's good news that we have this morning, church family. So as we are going to take a moment to zoom in on our suffering servant shepherd sent from above, we we take time and we zoom in with great clarity. You're wondering, why do I have binoculars? I'm not a big prop guy. Well, I have binoculars because last week, Max Chapman was looking at me with binoculars almost for a lot of the sermon over there on this side, and I loved it. I love it. So I want to take a moment before we dive in here, and I want to encourage you parents with little wiggly ones as you bring them. You are heroes. We love you, and we're thankful for you bringing them, and we're excited to see what the Holy Spirit, what He does through watching and listening. And I don't know if you are aware of this. If you have little ones in front of you or around you, you probably are. Watch their little heads look around and watch. Watch as they observe as you take notes and you listen and as you sing and as you wiggle around a little bit. Never underestimate how you're shaping the little ones around you for this is the call that God has placed upon our lives to be and make disciples. And that looks like at times singing and wiggling together as we sit under the Word of God. So parents also want to encourage you, 1 o'clock to 3 o'clock, you can drive through and pick up your devotion pack as well. So let's zoom in together in verses 1 through 11 as we note what Jesus knew. Look at what Jesus knew. We're going to see these three components. I'll give them to you quickly and we'll walk back through them. Jesus is the suffering servant shepherd who knew what was before him. First, we're going to take a moment to notice that Christ knows that his hour had come. He knew that his hour had come. Second, Jesus knows that he will return to the Father upon showing the full extent of God's love. And third, and perhaps 
Most shockingly, he knew that Judas was the betrayer. He knew what Judas had done, was planning to do, and would do. That's how great our God is. That's how great our God is, as he has this loving act of service. John wants to make clear that we as the reader, if we've been asleep at the wheel for the first 12 chapters, recognize that Jesus knows exactly what he's walking toward, the cross. And we as the children of God, by faith in the Son, we are called to walk out that repetition of joyful, loving, passionate service. And in that, we are blessed and the world is blessed by a faithful testimony. So let's look first at this this first central point that Jesus knew that his hour had come. We see at the very beginning in verse 1 of chapter 13, Jesus knew that his time, it had come. Now, sinful man historically looks at the weak and often sees opportunities to take advantage We see this even in an entrepreneurial spirit, not in a negative sense, but you notice a weakness or an opening and and there's an opportunity to capitalize, to be a wise investor. That's the nature of man. But John wants to make very clear for us in the text that Jesus is not a victim as we think. He's all-knowing. He knows the hour that is before him and he walks willingly in it. Lots of people think that they know. Matter of fact, that's what we see in the Scriptures. The disciples think that they know, and they, and they boldly and humbly speak forward. And they end up putting their foot in their mouth, and they learn again and again that they didn't quite know what they thought that they knew. Judas thought that he knew how the story would unfold, but he was wrong. The Pharisees thought that certainly they had known how the story would unfold, but they were wrong. Pilate will come to think that he knows how the story will unfold, but he is wrong. There's only one who knows exactly what the hour holds, and it's Jesus. He knows the trial that is set before him, and he walks in it. Not only does he know the hour before him, but he knows the depth of hatred in man's heart. The Pharisees miss it. They don't understand the level of self-deception. They don't understand the reality and their need of God opening their, their eyes and their heart. They don't understand. But Jesus knows the fullness of the hour that is before him. The fact that Christ has absolute knowledge of the situation and and he doesn't try to change it or flee from it, it demonstrates his complete shepherd-servant-like leadership. Absolutely incredible. Consider yourself and myself. If you knew the trial that was before you, what would you try to do? Think of your own life. We're in a room right now and there's many of our congregation watching at home that have entered into a multitude of trials, not only in this season of these last five months, but through your lives. Sometimes then we look back and we think, I wish I would have prepared this way, or I wish I would have done this instead of that to be more prepared for the trial before me. But Jesus knows the hour that is before him. And how did he prepare? Well, the Lord has shown us through his word how he prepared With absolute knowledge, he didn't try to get around it. He didn't try to avoid it or take a shortcut around the cross. In Mark chapter 1, verse 35, in his ministry of signs, healing the sick and driving out demons, Mark 1.35, we're told early in the morning while it was dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. In John chapter 6, if you remember, after the feeding of the 5,000, what did Jesus long to do? He longed to get away. Presumably to do what? To commune with the Father. We'll see as the trial builds. We'll see Jesus' high priestly prayer 
as John slows down. And we see as Jesus is aware of the weight before him, he makes time to spend with the Father in communion. We'll see the prayer in the garden. Jesus is attentive as he's aware of the trial before him. What does he do? He's intentional to spend time in communion with the Lord. What an insight for us, right church? What an insight. So we we ask as we look to Jesus who has absolute knowledge of the greatest trial that would ever befall man. He finds the priority. He knows he must prepare appropriately. And he spends time in constant communion with the Father. So what about us? None of us know the trials that are before us. None of us know. One funny thing, I don't believe Grace Bible that we've ever did this, but churches all across the country, this is funny, they had many of them would set out for the last five or ten years a 2020 vision. Are you aware of that? Churches, they had this big vision plan for 2020, and they had all these, all these goals they were aiming for, and what 2020 was going to look like for their church. They sent out this clear vision. This is what church is going to be like in 2020. And they established goals to reach those desires, and then 2020 happened. And I don't think anybody planned this, right? Matter of fact, if we had planned last year, we have a 2020 vision. And we're not going to meet for about nine weeks, at least. You thought we were crazy. That would be crazy. And so what should we do as people who do not know the future? We don't know the trial that the Lord has appointed on the calendar of each of our individual lives and then corporately as a church body. As a church body, a congregation goes through trials together. And individually, we go through individual trials together. So we have church members this week that have buried loved ones. We have church members this month that have, that have welcomed new life. We have church members, many at home, that are struggling with severe isolation and loneliness that they had never experienced to this depth before. So what ought we to do knowing that we have limited knowledge of the trial before us? We ought to look at Jesus who knew the trial before him and long and prioritize time with the Father to celebrate the communion we're able to have together of the saints. To pray together and to encourage each other and lean into fellowship together. For we do not know the trial that is coming for us. And we do not know the trial that is coming for the person sitting behind us or before us. Oh, that the Lord desires us to be an edifying people. Building one another up. And evangelizing people. Proclaiming the gospel. Proclaiming the good news. This is the God's call for our life, church family, to be a light, to beware of the trials before us. And secondly, Jesus knew that he would return to the Father. Not only did he know the trial that was before him, he knew that he would return to the Father upon showing the full extent of God's love. He tells us that, continuing in verse 1, to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So loved. The love of God is unimaginable. And Jesus knew why He was sent. The eternal Son was sent to do the work the Father has established for Him to do. And He will do it perfectly. And it will culminate in the greatest act of love imaginable. The righteous for the unrighteous. The blameless Lamb of God who goes not as a victim but as a willing volunteer to the cross. The only Holy One. We cannot pay our debt. You can't clean yourself up. You can try, but you can't. It's impossible. A righteous, holy sacrifice only 
Jesus. And it leads those who believe in Christ to be comforted and to find rest. And to those who do not know the rest of Christ, they labor, but they labor in vain in the best of their works. But oh, if they will come to Jesus, they will find forgiveness and eternal life. Beloved, this is the good news that God has given us to herald, to speak of, and to serve out of. Jesus knew that he would return to the Father upon showing the full extent of God's love. The love that God shows is unimaginable. Christ's present work of washing feet is a foretaste of the soul cleansing that is to come. One scholar, Andreas Kassenberger, puts it like this. In Jesus' washing of Judas' feet, he cleanses them, he washes them. And it leads Peter to say, well, well, Lord, then wash all of me. He says, no, no, this is enough for now. Because a greater washing was to come. He would be washed by the shed blood of Christ, the giving of his life would come. For in this way, physically, literally, they were clean. Their dirty feet were cleaned. But also, functionally, the presence of the believers is cleaned. For Judas, upon being served, he flees their presence. This act is not simply an act of love of him washing their feet. Jesus is giving his disciples an act of love by purifying the bride. And in their lack of knowledge, as we'll see next week, that they don't put it together. Even still, they can't figure out why and what's taking place. For they look at Judas who will flee and they'll say, he must be going and taking care of the poor. But the Lord knows. He loves his bride. He loves his flock. You are loved. We proclaim a good news of the love of God to all who believe they may find eternal life in Christ. Regardless of what you've done or been done to you, that is a news that the world desperately needs and has needed for all time. And good news, church. He's adopted us as ambassadors into this good news. That's good news. That's our life. Loving, sacrificial service and, and proclamating, proclaiming the truth and pouring out our lives to make disciples. That's our calling, to be and make disciples for the glory of God. That has not changed. It flows to the life of the disciples and it is our very purpose, regardless if you're a student or a senior adult. This is our calling to be and make disciples. So God, would you help us to celebrate and live in and share the love of God. Third, what did Jesus know? Jesus knew that Judas was the betrayer. All of this in this scene is compounded by the fact that Jesus knew that Judas was the betrayer. He knows. If you look in verse 2 of chapter 13, there's some discussion. Who is the his talking about? Is this... Satan coming into him, who's making up his mind? Is it Satan or is it Judas? Well, I think it's Judas that's making up his mind of the betrayal. Later on, we get a hint. We'll look at it next week in verse 27. You can scroll down there if you like. But verse 27 seems to be the point at which Satan enters into Judas and leads him to follow through with what Judas sets his heart on here in verse 2, the betrayal of Jesus. The point for us, regardless of which one of those may be most accurate, the point is that Jesus knew that Judas was the betrayer. 
And he sat beside him. The whole time, he was in the room with them. He knew. I don't know how you're wired, but just so you know, if, if, if you and I get a conflict, like, I can't let that sit. I have got to deal with that. I've got to, I'll do sleepover. I'll, I need to talk to, let's talk about it. Let's work it through. Let's make sure we know where we stand together. Don't want there to be any friction. Jesus, in his great love, knows the betrayer is in the room with him. If this was a story written by me or by man, what would you do? What an opportunity from the perspective of man. He can stop it. He knows the trial that is before him. John's made it clear again all through the gospel. His hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. And now it's finals day. The hour has come. And he can stop it. Judas is in the room. He can stop him from betraying him. All he's got to do is call him out and stop him. And he won't be able to go and eventually betray him with a kiss. Jesus knows. When I was a kid, I was blessed to grow up with three older sisters. I still am. Three older sisters. And one of the most traumatic punishments that my parents would put me through if we did something wrong, and honestly it was usually 90-some percent me. My marriage still reflects that oftentimes. But what my dad would tell me when he would get home, which would be far more worse than any other discipline, is he would say, you need to kiss and make up. Number one, I was usually angry. And number two, ooh, right? Ooh, kiss and make up. Number one, I don't even want to be in the room with them without taking a swing. I was little, right? But number two, that's gross. I know. Kiss and make up. Jesus is knowingly in the room with his betrayer, and he is not 0.01% to blame. He is the sinless Lamb of God. He knows what Judas has already worked in his heart. He knows that Judas has been robbing from the treasury the entire ministry. He knows. He knows what he's already set in his heart to do in verse 2. And Jesus washes his feet. There's multiple more purposes than simply demonstrating the unimaginable love of God. But while we were yet enemies. Here Jesus sits with somebody who I don't know who could be more characterized as an enemy of Jesus. And Jesus in love and obedience to the Father. He doesn't tackle him. He doesn't bend over to trip him. He bends to wash his betrayer's feet. That is a contrast to everything we see in a 24-hour news cycle. Church family, that's what we must set our minds upon. The Word of God. For if we do not, we will be shaped and molded by the world in our fleshly desire for vengeance. But to look to Christ, our King and our example, and we want to be clear here, right? If it's only what Jesus uniquely does and accomplishes that brings us eternal life. So in our serving others, we're not paying Jesus back. And we're not paying it forward. We are recipients of what Christ has done. 
But it leads us to the second reality that the children of God, to those who believe, have the right to become children of God. And how are the children of God most blessed and most at peace? It's when they walk in the example and way of their God, their Lord. That's when they're most blessed. That's when we're most honored. A student is most honored when they sit in the way and the word of their teacher. A servant is most blessed when they walk in the steps of their master. So servants, beloved of God, John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And if you're not, if you've never believed upon Christ, turn and trust Jesus today and become a child of God. Not earning, not applying, but receiving forgiveness of sins. Become a child of God by faith in Jesus. That's the good news. And as children of God, we are most blessed when we abide in the way of our Lord's sacrificial service. Servants of their great suffering servant shepherd are most blessed by the abiding repetition of their Lord's example. Not adding to our salvation, but abiding in Christ, we reflect the way of our teacher. The one we're a learner of, a student of. The one who has sent the Spirit, he who abides we abide in and rest in us. And we walk in the way that the Lord has given us. So Jesus provides his disciples with two relationship dynamics. We, do you see that? The teacher to student relationship and the master to servant relationship. And what did the disciples just witness Jesus doing? So imagine you're in the room, you don't even need your binoculars. You're in the room and you not only just saw Jesus do something, but you can look down at your feet if you forgot and your feet are squeaky clean. What did you just see Jesus do? Did you see him make a political play for office? Did you see him slaughter a Roman soldier? Did he put Judas in a chokehold? No. With clean feet you stand. And Jesus tells you. Do you understand what I've done for you? In verse 7, he told him, you don't understand what I did for you. Now he's washed their feet and he asks him again, do you understand what I did for you? And he uses these illustrations. As a teacher, a student to the teacher, and a servant to the Lord. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Blessed are you if you do them. This is one of two blessings in the Gospel of John. Two Beatitudes. The second one is in John 20. So we have two Beatitudes hidden in the Gospel of John. It's not actually hidden at all. It's just there in the Gospel of John. We have this one, John 13, 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And the second is in John 20, 29. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. There is no greater joy in the student than abiding in the way of their teacher. Can you remember back when you were in school? For once, that example works to every person in the room. Even if you're a student, I can ask, do you remember back when you were in school? And the fourth graders are like, this is really connecting with me right now. Because I can remember. It was like back in February. But when you were in school and you 
did something correctly, or you played a sport, or you played an instrument, and you did it correctly, and your teacher came to you and said, yes, that's it. You, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. How that resonates still as an adult, looking back at your life, that resonates with your heart. This well done. It resonates. The student is most blessed and abiding in their teacher. The apprentice is pleased in their instructor's pleasure. But to be honest with you, this only sounds like in how my mind works, like it would be half the story. I think in our Western culture, in order for this to be a real success story, the student would go on to become not only a teacher, but one of the greatest teachers ever known. The apprentice would go on to be the most successful of owners. True success, you don't stay low, you don't stay small, you grow and expand. Your influence expounds everywhere and your name is made famous. But that's not what Jesus sets out for his disciples. Blessed are you. If you do them, the heart of a servant, the great shepherd, suffering shepherd servant, this is what you're to do. And if our, sir, if our Savior, if our teacher, if our master is not below getting down and taking the position of the lowest of Gentile servants or, or women in that culture, what in the world can be below us to show love to others? Nothing. Nothing that we can say can be below the example that Christ has set to show sacrificial and joyful love even to our enemies. That's the radicalness of the good news of Jesus. We're freed from the way of the world. We're freed to love and to serve and to pour our lives out and to proclaim a message of good news and and a culture that is ever shifting as Jerry prayed earlier. The steadfastness of the Word of God, the contrasting image that will always be a person sacrificially serving, will always catch the eye of the world. They may want to suppress it, they may not like it, but they will always be stumped by it. Because light at night always captures attention. And that's the goodness of the Gospel. We go out as signposts to Jesus. John 1-12 through is still happening. As the children of God reflect the blessings of the Lord as they walk in Him. That's good news. That's good news. Now, this isn't only a positive of edifying and evangelizing and enjoying resting in Jesus, but I want you to flip back to John chapter 12. We looked at last week. Look at John chapter 12, verse 47 and 48. He said, in this text we just read in 13, 17, blessed are you if you know this and you do these things. The sacrificial service for the beloved of God, the disciples, those who believe in Jesus. That's the positive appeal. Blessed are you. Now, last week, which is really the same unfolding of the scene, right? Last week in verse 47 through 48, we see the negative appeal. The consequence of those who know, those who hear and will not do. Here it is. Look at the contrast. Here's the negative appeal. Verse 47 and 48 of John chapter 12. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, 
I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Combined together, the one who sees and hears what Christ has said and done, compared to the one who does not, will be under the judgment of God. And the ruinous results of those who will not abide in Christ, those who do not worship the Lord, they experience the natural ruinous consequences of life in darkness. A stumbling, a swinging against the wind, a hollowness that will always be there. But to those who believe in Jesus, the blessing of our Creator, a blessing of abiding in Christ who by His work and His example would serve His betrayer, knowing that it would go to the cross to purchase our salvation. We don't have to jockey for position, beloved. We abide by faith in Jesus and have life. That's the good news and the blessing that is yours by belief, children of God. That's good news. Amen? Restful, submissive repetition. We wash, and in washing we are blessed. So in this way, if we're to summarize all this down, Christians, we are simply many servant shepherds walking by the Spirit, striving for submissive repetition in the word and way of Jesus. Rest in Him. Believe on Christ and have life. Your purpose in life is to be and make disciples, to be poured out for the glory of God, to wash feet, and to proclaim the message of hope found in Christ alone in a world of darkness. That's good news. Next steps. Next steps. First, I'd say if you do not yet know Christ as your Savior and Lord, rest in Jesus, turn and believe in Him and come to life. And those of us who are believers, we don't rival or pay back Christ. Instead, we abide in Him and serve others for His glory and our good. So specifically, a question for us is, who and how will I intentionally serve this week? Who will I show the love of God to this week? Not my love. Who will I show His love to this week? It's not about the student and it's not about the servant. It's about the one to whom we serve. He is the one that we make disciples of. In His image, not ours. So this week, two very functional questions I'd encourage you to pray about and consider. Even right now this morning, before you would leave this room, would be to ask the Lord, Lord, teacher, who would you have for me to serve? Would you place them on my heart and my mind? And how do you desire me to serve them? The Spirit of God will flesh that out in your life, but ask Him sincerely, who and how will I serve this week? Perhaps for some of you, it's an enemy that the Lord will place on your heart. Who and how does the Lord desire you to serve them? And secondly, in our next step, 
As a church, we believe in sacrificial service. And this way, we ask members to serve in two ways. Through a ministry of Grace Bible, and secondly, through a life of service that shows itself by sharing the gospel and by obedience to the Spirit as it provides opportunities to love our neighbors. So would you ask the Spirit likewise, God, would you show me opportunities to serve? Would you give me boldness to do so? Would you pour me out for your glory? What a joy. Listen, what a joy to be poured out together. That we're not on our own, individual, isolated, that together we are being poured out for His glory. We abide and we rest in Him and we're joyfully poured out for His glory. And we sing His praises, not our praises. We fix our attention on on the Lord. It's done. So rest in Him and go and do for His glory. The one who has finished the work of ultimate service. Church family, would you stand with me? as we respond to the preaching of the Word of God.